and welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Uh, Michael, if you had to name a winner from the financial crisis, who would it be? Rich people. Yeah, that that's actually kind of works. So according to a Bloomberg article by Jason Kelly, private equity won the financial crisis. So he says, a decade since the world economy almost came apart, big banks are more heavily regulated and scrutinized. Hedge funds, which live on the volatility central banks have worked so hard to quash, have mostly lost their flair. But the firms once known as leveraged buyout shops are thriving. Almost everything that's happened since 2008 has tilted in their favor. Low interest rates, a political friendly environment, and a long list of clients. Actually, QE did not kill volatility. What does that even mean? Stocks still go up and down. Yeah, that's true. I think that's just a good hedge fund excuse. But wouldn't you say some of the luster has been lost on hedge funds in terms of their uh, rank as masters of the universe? Well, obviously. Yeah. but So so he had a few stats in here. It says there are now 8,000 plus PE-backed companies, almost double the number of pr- publicly listed companies. I, I think that kind of excludes things like microcaps, but however you take that, I guess I didn't realize there were that many private equity-backed companies. The other one that kind of threw me here, there are now more private equity managers who make at least $100 million annually than investment bankers, top financial executives, and professional athletes combined. Pretty wild. So I guess the thing is, do you think that private equity kind of manages to stay under the radar a little more? I mean, every once in a while, we see one of these stories about someone like Toys R Us that goes bankrupt and Part of the reason people people blame the private equity backers who just loaded them up with with debt and then kind of they just go out of business because the private equity people can't turn them around. But do you think that because of the firms that they're typically buying retail or manufacturing or just not as sexy of industries as something like tech, where they they avoid the scrutiny that someone like the venture capital industry is now feeling? Absolutely. We spoke about private equity had a bull's on his back maybe a year ago, what they were doing to grocery stores. But it's as if they were like, maybe they were accelerating the trend, but obviously the trend was in place. So to your point, the type of businesses that they're investing in are kind of old and stodgy, whereas the VCs are obviously Uber and, and Slack and Lyft and all those sort of high profile names. And then hedge funds that have their performance all over the place, not just in terms of like up and down performance, but just it's, it's very public. So yes, I do think for a good reason, private equity has skated by rather cleanly. I just wonder if that's going to change now that there's there's so much institutional capital and rich people capital sloshing around there that they're going to have... So. You don't think that's going to change at all? No, for the reasons we just said, I think it's sort of in the nature of that business. I just think the fact that there's more money in there than ever, once we start seeing a lot more disappointment in that space, I think there's going to be a lot more of these cover stories showing how private equity has failed endowments and foundations and pensions. And now what do we do? Wait, so how many people are making $100 million a year? And are they able to survive in major cities with that much money? Only if they don't drink coffee every day. So this kind of leads into the next one, which Scott Galloway, looks like there's a little bit of a tech hissy fit on Twitter over the weekend over Scott Galloway. I think a lot of the VCs are having a hard time dealing with all the pressure or all the scrutiny they're getting now because they were once the, the sort of scrappy underdogs. And now they're kind of having to deal with having the spotlight shown on them. So Scott Galloway tweeted, 
Overvalued unicorns, Pinterest, Snap, Twitter, Peloton, Slack, DoorDash, Lime, Palantir, Uber, and Compass. And he said companies that will lose 80% or disappear, Tesla, WeWork, Robinhood, Lyft, and OYO, which I don't know what that one is. I, I do wonder if Galloway is doing the dice thing from uh, Knocked Up, where like that's all he's got, kind of. He obviously nailed the WeWork thing. And I, I said to you, is he kind of becoming a momentum trader here, just predicting the, that all these ones will fail? We talked about Robinhood last week a little bit. I, I kind of thought, well, they must be down, I don't know, 40 or 50% on the news. He's saying 80% or disappear. It seems like he's definitely pressing his shorts here. I think Linz, Howard Lindzen is saying that actually Robinhood is worth whatever, $8 billion, and it's the other ones that are, that are in trouble. And you saw it last week with TD getting whacked 25%. But to Galloway's credit, and, and obviously this has ruffled a lot of feathers and, and hurt feelings and stuff, he was right. Yes, he nailed the WeWork thing as good or better than anyone, and the timing on it was right too. We've been talking about WeWork for a while. I think we started we, we started talking about WeWork when they bought the wave pool. Remember that one? <laughs> True. But like, so what is what is Galloway supposed to do? Like back off and, and just like ride off into the sunset? Like, of course he's gonna, you know, uh, get louder. I don't think he's gotten any more obnoxious than he already is. And I don't I don't mean that in a bad way. I think he's very entertaining. Yeah, and he's been he's been wrong in the past, and he 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 kind of owns up to it. He said Macy's retail was gonna compete with Amazon, but so what? Everyone's wrong. Yeah, when you make that many predictions, you're bound to be wrong. But then he was he was arguing with. Keith, I don't know how you spell how you say his last name. Is it Raboy? Raboy is it S silent? I don't know, but he made some pretty douchey comments. Like if you haven't done a ten billion dollar business, then you're not really in business. I mean, something I don't you know. We'll link to it in the show notes. But it was. It's a it lot sounds of like so, it sounds like something that you'd write in the show Silicon Valley. Like some of these people just have I don't know no zero self awareness. It's so I, I did do a piece. I think I talked about it last week. I wanted to look at the IPO market, so I did do a piece for Fortune on this. It's pretty wild. Pretty much out of all the high-profile ones that have gone public in 2019, so Pinterest, Slack, Lyft, Zoom, Uber, Peloton, and then Beyond Meat. Wait, Pinterest has been... Oh, Pinterest did just go public. Yeah, so that's one of the few ones that's up. The, the biggest winner, the only really huge winner is Beyond Meat, which is up 500% somehow. You mean of the high-profile ones? Of the high-profile ones. There's other ones that are up too. Zoom is up over 100%. Pinterest is up 40%. The crazy thing is, if you look at how they did on their very first day, Zoom was up 163% in the first day. Pinterest was up 30%. So if you look at how much of that gain that they've had since IPO price came in the first day, for most of them, it's the majority of the gain. Did, so, you, did you look at what the results would have been if you bought it on the day after, the, like on the close of the IPO? Are they, does that change the equation? Yeah, lot? so Beyond Meat goes from a 500% gain to 125% gain. So still a pretty good bump, but not nearly as much. Twitter has yet to hit that price it hit on the first day after going public, and that's in 2013. Mm-hmm. And so I, lo- I went back and looked at some other ones. But the thing we're getting now is that a lot of these public companies that are coming out, like Peloton, it's not, it's not like they're seeing huge losses. They're not seeing any bump at all when they're seeing a 10 or 12% loss on the first day. You know, speaking of Peloton, so Howard uh, Stern has been talking about Peloton, I guess, for, I guess he got it around the same time that I did. And uh, he had to have sold. You know, I'm throwing out a number, 50,000 units. So he's talking people into it. I mean, he has got such a massive audience and like a, a cult following. So I would, I would suspect that a lot of his, even if it's one half of 1% of his listeners bought a Peloton. Have you ridden with him yet? Do you guys, are you guys on the same team? We both are anonymous. You know, I have to ask, people want to know, did you stick with the whatever weird 30 day diet? What's it called? The whole 30. Yes. I, I didn't, I never got an update on this from you. Yeah, actually, I did. And I am 
I guess this is like day 25. I have like okay, so you're Sunday, still doing I'm, it on Sunday. I'm done, and I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to it. How like how hard has it been? I feel like the first week or two, I was really like mentally into it and excited about just like committing to something because that's like not in my nature. But it's gotten more difficult only because it's just monotonous. Like it's it's literally vegetables and meat and not much else and and fruit. But how often have you been tempted to have something sweet or not? Uh, I mean, last night, for example, we had people over and we ordered an Italian food, and like that was kind of tough. But whatever, not so bad. Okay. Although, so you're gonna make it I the just whole thirty actually, days today. I read about like how you get off of this because if you like, if on day thirty-one you you know drink a ton and eat pizza and whatatever, it's not so good for you. So, oh, I'm gonna uh, ease. Yeah. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try and ease off of it. Okay. But wait, let me let me ask you something. How do I look? Much thinner. I feel like Seriously? your hair's. I think your hair's getting longer. <laughs> Jerk. How much how much weight have you lost? I didn't weigh myself before I started. That was kind of dumb. Okay. Yes. No. Cheekbones are looking. Yeah. It's. I, I give you that. credit. I for thirty days. I I would have a hard time. I need to cheat every once in a while. So, our friends from Equity Zen actually sent us some data on this, and maybe one of the reasons a lot of these. IPOs are doing so poorly as they found in 1994, the average U.S. tech company went public four years after founding. Recently, that's grown to 11 years. From 1999 to 2018, the median time for a company that went public by an IPO increased from five years to more than 10 years. Capital invested in private technology companies grew from $11 billion in 2005 to $75 billion in 2015 and almost tripled from 2013 to 2015 alone. Six companies between 2004 and 2015 reached valuations upwards of $10 billion before going public. So I guess it almost like the writing was on the wall here that it makes sense that a lot of these firms have been performing poorly when they get public because so much of the growth has come before. And, and that's even before the last three or four years and things were going even crazier. Yeah, those, those are good numbers. Okay. The Economist had a piece about how the stock market is now being run by computers, algorithms, and passive managers. It's kind of funny to read some of these quotes. So even by the 1980s, reading the Wall Street Journal on your way to work, a television on the trading floor, and a ticker tape offered a significant information advantage, recalls one investor that was said in this story. And they're talking about how 7 billion shares ch- change hands on a daily basis, which is around... But what about, what about price discovery? $320 billion. And some people worry, well, the algos are controlling everything and moving everything around. Would we really ever want to go back to this place where reading the Wall Street Journal on your way to work offered a significant information advantage? Like, do people really want to go back to those days? I mean, maybe some people do. I want to go back to the days where just a a handful of fund managers were manipulating the market and it wasn't computers. That was more fun. (laughs) Right. Like, this is why, like, what what are the books, the the trading books that you like, the masters of the market or what is it called? Oh, the stock market wizards. Stock market wizards. That's the one. Money train. D, like obviously, when you or read not, some of those books, wait, by the way, did he, I just said Money Train. Money as in, that's a movie with Wesley Snipes and uh, Woody, Woody Harrelson. Oh, yeah. I think it's that's called classic. The Money Bees, actually. Okay, I was thinking about stock market wizards. So you read some of those books and you realize some of the advantages they had. People like Steinhardt, like a lot of those, the seventies and eighties were just like the wild, wild west in well, a lot of yeah, ways. Steinhardt was like, I mean, his his edge was information. But do you think that in thirty years would they even be able to write those books about someone? now or over the next 10 years? Because I don't think it's even possible anymore. Who are they going to write about? I did a post a while ago, like, where are the, the superstars? They don't exist anymore. Right. And maybe it is because a lot of... I, I think it's just the, the competition has gotten so stiff, but 
those things just and maybe that's the, the those are the days people want you know to happen again but guess what even back then when you didn't have all this information you didn't know a lot of these things it's not like it was so easy for people to just figure this stuff out like you had to be you had to understand how the markets work to figure out the the loopholes in the system still i feel like there's like the 47,000th article on this we've seen like yeah, it's true. But so they, they have a... What else What else do we have to say on this topic? I know. One chart they have, they showed the percentage of institutional trading by volume. And it shows quant funds have gone from 20% to 40%, basically, over the last 10 years. And asset managers are slowly falling. Actually, hedge funds have gone down a little bit and banks have gone down. So quant funds have basically picked up the slack. So, I mean, who is the first hedge fund? Was it Alfred Winslow or Alfred Jones? Yeah, Winslow, I think was the name. And he was basically doing this long short stuff before anybody else was, and all of that stuff now now it's just systematized, yeah, which is the natural progression it. of any market. Yeah. Okay. So, I don't know how much you've thought you've given to. By the way, it's Alfred Winslow Jones. I just oh, I just remembered. Okay. It's the hyphen thing. Okay, so you were right both times. I don't know how much thought you've given to this. I've been thinking about it a little bit because our daughter is is fast approaching six. Allowance for your kids. This is the New York Times. Two-thirds of parents give their child an allowance, and the average weekly amount is $30, according to a survey published this week by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. That's up from $17 in 2016. Talk wait, about inflation. Questions. Yeah, right? They said, yeah. Is, wait, is, is allowance in the CPI basket? I don't know. Obviously not. Have any of these kids been to the grocery store lately? <laughs> Many children aren't simply getting a handout, though. Four and five parents who give an allowance say they expected their offspring to work for money about five hours a week of household chores on average. Five hours? Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's no way that happens. There's, there's no way kids are doing five hours of chores a week. How long does it take to take out the garbage? Right. Three and a half minutes? Yeah. It's, there's no way parents are doing five hours of work a week around the house. There's, Nonsense. That's oh, a, by the way, speaking of bunk surveys, last week with the, with the ISM uh, survey indicating that we're in contraction, I mean, hello? Don't pay attention to surveys. You're just economic data. Throw out the window. But No, if they're surveys, yeah, get rid of them. Uh, so wait, so I have a question. What are the appropriate ages? Because I used to get an allowance, but I think it ended when I was like 12. I mean, my, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how, where the lines blur between like allowance and then lunch money or spending well, that's money. What, say, or... like, what, if, what if you got 20 bucks a week? Because I feel like in middle school, you could have gotten like a decent meal for like four bucks. I was kind of like stretching it. Right. So f- four bucks times five, 20 bucks. So I figured it out. So that's what it was. But it was, it was mainly like lunch money. I guess at a certain age, it cha- you know, the definition of allowance changes. But what, what age do you think allowance starts? Because my daughter is, she'll be six next year. But like, you, okay, so you give her five bucks a week. What is she going to do with that? Exactly. She doesn't really understand what money is at this point. And wait, and, wait, hold on. Fiat or yeah, I'm gonna pay her in Bitcoin, obviously. But yeah, I don't know. I don't really understand how this works because everything is going to be just like what happens when they get your Amazon password and they just start buying stuff on your Amazon account. Or that money is going to mean nothing to kids anymore, right? Like you try to give them dollar bills and they're gonna laugh at you, right? Like they don't ever see. Like I don't. I never carry cash anymore. I've spent very little time talk, thinking about money and my children. I mean, obviously, my kids are very young, but no, that, that's good to know. No, what? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll lay down the path for you here, since mine are my uh, oldest is older than yours. So I appreciate that. I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. Okay, so last week, Sports Illustrated laid off like forty to fifty percent of their staff, I guess, and it sounded like it was kind of like Succession, where they brought them all into a room and basically said. Sorry, uh, you lost your job. 
And you hear these stories a lot, especially in the media realm these days, where jobs are being lost left and right. And it's kind of a weird like nostalgia thing for me because I used to love every week getting that Sports Illustrated in the mail, and I would just read uh, it cover to cover. Sports Illustrated for kids? And Sports was Illustrated before, for kids, yeah. Was that, no. before, was that, was that uh, after your time? I'm not that much older than you. <laughs> I don't know if that one still... I think we talked about this before. I don't know if that one still even exists. But you hear these anecdotes, and it seems like these industries are just being disrupted left and right. And then, I mean, on the other, to balance it out, you have something like The Athletic, which is another VC-backed enterprise that people are paying for. I don't know. What is it? Five bucks a month? Have you ever paid for that before or read anything from I do, there? I, I do pay for it. How much is it? I don't know. Is it worth it? To be honest, I don't read it that often, but I feel like I, I like supporting those, those people. Um, question, though. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> I like supporting those people. <laughs> I'm doing my part, Ben. What are you doing? You're a humanitarian. <laughs> um, but you said the other day to me, it's kind of interesting that all of these industries are being blown up. And interesting is the wrong word. It's very sad. But that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the unemployment rate is still yeah, incredibly low. It was down to 3.5%. So there was a story in the Wall Street Journal. Here's the headline. Economists wonder how low U.S. unemployment can go. Joblessness, the, joblessness can, is at a fifty-year low, but many say wages go, could be rising faster if economy were really at full employment. Do we think that the unemployment rate can go negative? Negative rates. But how crazy would this headline have been eight or nine years ago? People which, just which say, one? The sport, if, if, the this, if you were to read, if you were to get the headline in advance, like nine years ago, and you saw this, how low can unemployment go? You would say probably I don't know six uh, percent. Uh, like it's just amazing how quickly this stuff has just become ah whatever three and a half percent. It, like this is mind-boggling for people when it was ten percent in two thousand nine or two thousand ten, right? It's interesting. Yes, the New York Times, however, is doing very well. I don't know about like their employees, but and when I say very well, I mean like the stock price. But oh, so that's one publication there, that's doing okay. Yeah, yeah, but wasn't there like a Cleveland newspaper or Denver or something recently where basically everybody get, got laid off? Is this like has Twitter just replaced journalism, which is obviously a very very scary thought? Well, and that's part of the other thing is that there there are just so many more outlets these days. So the old traditional ones are going by the wayside somehow. I just don't know how Sports Illustrated ever let something like ESPN happen on their watch. Doesn't that almost seem like an untold blockbuster Netflix kind of thing? Like Sports Illustrated had the sports block cornered for a long, long time. Decades and decades before ESPN came out. Does ESPN still have a magazine? Or is that... Not a, I, I would imagine. Oh wait, that ended, didn't it? I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, it's it, maybe it's just the kind of thing where all these traditional media sites, for the most part, are kind of just having trouble keeping up. Which, right or wrong, that's just the way things are going. Didn't Sports Center like kick uh, Simmons out and weren't really interested in his podcasting ideas? Well, I think the whole ESPN. I guess he, he got fired for different reasons. But they, how late were they to podcasts? Yeah, well, someone like Barstool Sports is bigger than them now. It's, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe that's just the way this is. If it's hard for companies to cannibalize themselves and try new things, and that maybe that's just the way that these things almost always work. So here's the other one from the Wall Street Journal that kind of got me. In September, the unemployment rate for workers with less than a high school diploma dropped to four point eight percent, the lowest level since the Labor Department started counting that measure in nineteen ninety two. Wow. So obviously, there's always ways you can look at the world could be a better place, but economically, things are pretty darn good right now, and this is the top. Well, they're not good in Manhattan. Do you see what's going on with Manhattan real estate? Sorry, haven't been paying attention. That's okay. Previously owned condos and co-ops sold for a median of $915,000 in the third quarter, down 8% from a year earlier. 
that's uh, it was the first decline in the past ten quarters and the biggest since the first quarter of two thousand eleven. But eight percent—that's a ton. So you sold at the top, basically. Well, I was I was not in Manhattan. Okay. Twenty nine percent of Manhattan's inventory is priced over three million dollars, which is just nuts. Right? That's such a high number. <laughs> yes. Yet in the quarter, only nine point seven percent of closings were in that range, and I wonder if this is something to do with the what's going on with like tax breaks or mortgages and stuff. Who knows? I mean, wasn't this inevitable at some point though? With like, there's only so many millionaires New York can can handle, right? Or so, or so many. I mean, how many people are there? Seven million people in New York City. Um, I just think it's wild that it's gone on for this long, and prices were ever to get to that point to begin with. And I guess obviously the same thing should be happening in California and many places, but it hasn't yet. So I guess the obvious question is: uh, Is this 2008 all over again? Dun 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 dun. Okay, so. There was this cool long piece in something called theapartmentlist.com. I'm guessing it's where you find an apartment. And they showed, going back to like the 1960s, what's going on with young people over time. And so they, they broke it out between people that live with a spouse, live with a parent, live with a roommate, or live with an unmarried partner, or live alone. And they showed how people living with their parents is now the greatest category. It went from 10% in 1968 to almost 30% now. Sorry, I have to ask. What? Where, where, do they, where do they get this data? Is this word of mouth? U.S. Census Bureau. That's, I right. mean, as far as surveys all go... Right, all right, all right. I'm as anti-survey as you. As far as surveys go, okay, in 1968, almost 80% of 26-year-olds lived with a spouse. Now... That was, that was unsustainable. That was obviously a bubble. 24% live with a spouse, 30% live with a parent in two, as of 2018. Yeah, that and, and obviously the big thing there is education and people pushing off adulting till later in their life. I just can't believe it was that high back then. Well, those are like our parents, right? Because t- what, what, what year is that? 1968. So 1968, take it on my, cal- my calculator right now. Boom. Born in 1942. So these are like the first boomers. Can't believe you still have a calculator next to your keyboard. No, this is a phone. Oh, okay. So our parents got married at a young age. This makes sense. Yeah, it does make. It's just, I mean, the the decline in this chart is just. I mean, it's just a straight line down from. How low can it go? You you thinking about calling a bottom here or what? I, I'm waiting for your technical analysis on the Fibonacci numbers here. I'm not seeing any signs of. Uh, the trend is your friend. I wouldn't buy just yet. We spent a lot of time last week talking about the the fee wars and what's going on. I think after we taped, E Trade maybe came out and said they were going to lower to zero as well, and we kind of assumed the dominoes would fall, and most of these companies would. We received an email from someone who I assume works at Fidelity and said that they've been in some internal meetings and discussions about this. And they say Fidelity is leaning towards not joining zero commissions, but just kind of showing... Unless unless this person really works um, at Schwab and is trying to throw, this, throw us off their scent. Secret agent. So they say they, they want to just use their communication channels to show off Fidelity uses order routing to save clients money and not really go to zero. And they say... Fidelity actually loses money on clients who are primarily traders anyway. So people who want the zero trades and change to Fidelity, maybe they'd be the wrong people they'd want to target anyway. But they they think Fidelity is going to change more to... He said they're going to hire about 600-ish advisors over the next 12 months. And they already have profit margins of about 35%. So an RIA biz actually backed this up and said... It sounds like Fidelity is not going to go to zero. I mean, they're already pretty low, and it, they probably have what four ninety five trades or something. Whatever the difference there is minimal. So the, it kind of the story from RIA Biz kind of backed up what this 
insider from Fidelity said. But I I guess I I never thought about this, but I, I laid this out to you wanted to see what you think. So I think Fidelity is the Microsoft of asset management. They're kind of the one that no one really talks about because they're not making they're not having the huge growth that someone like Vanguard or iShares is having. They're not public. Yeah, they're not public, so that's part of it. But they've just been kind of laying in the, in in I you know five to seven years ago, if you knew it was if you saw the writing on the wall in terms of index investing and growing, you would have said Fidelity is going to be a big loser. They really haven't been. They've continued to grow. Their four hundred one k business is huge. Microsoft is kind of in the same camp where people kind of wrote them off, and they'd rather talk about Apple or Amazon or Facebook or Netflix. But then somehow Microsoft they they had their period for ten years or so where they didn't the stock price didn't go anywhere. They seem to miss out on just about every big move. They miss out on the phone. They miss out on a lot of internet stuff. The operating system isn't quite as big as it used to or whatever. And yet Microsoft is still the largest company in the world. So is Fidelity, with that those huge profit margins that they have, do they have are they actually in a position, better position than most in the asset management firm to continue to kind of do whatever they want here for a while? And they also they like own the 401k space. Yes, they own the 401k space, which is... Which is basically locking in people people's money and knowing that the money is going to increase for a, quite a while until these people start uh, retiring. I think there's a good case we made that Fidelity is the Microsoft of asset management, where they don't. No one talks about them very much. Oh come on, give me a little credit on this one. It's good, right? So Vanguard is Amazon. iShares is I don't know. I'm I'm trying to. I'm Fidelity is Microsoft. That's all I'm saying. Scott trade is blockbuster. <laughs> does that does that play? Does that still exist? <laughs> they were bought by uh, who were they bought by? Fidelity? I don't remember. Is that one? Is that another firm you gave like nineteen thousand dollars in commissions to? <laughs> Just today. Can you imagine what would Michael Batnick, the trader, have been like with free trading commissions? Like, would you have traded four times as much? Honestly, the the commissions weren't slowing me down. So, like you you said that you walked into like a branch office one day and they threw they like give you a glass of champagne and threw you a party because you were like the greatest. <laughs> Like the greatest commission turner that they've ever had. Oh, man. Yes, true story. Okay. So Jason Zweig was writing about what Schwab did. And we said in one of the previous shows that there's like $9 trillion in savings accounts earning virtually nothing. And uh, at Schwab, they have, as of June 30th, $208 billion. And the clients were earning between 0.12 and 0.55% on those balances. And obviously... Whatever the difference is, is going to Schwab because they don't automatically sweep money into the higher yielding accounts. So the other thing that Schwab does is in their Schwab Intelligent Portfolios, which has how many billions of dollars there? It's big. Yeah, it's huge. Between 6 and 30% of the money goes into cash. And I think that 30% number is obviously like eye-opening, but I think it's... I think it's like one or two percent of all accounts have that much cash. So anyhow, the point is that yeah, they said the average holding in the cash in that program is ten percent. Okay, which is still a decent allocation. I mean, yes, it's still a lot. So, so the point is, they're making it up in other ways. Right. They're, these places are not charities. They're going to find ways to make money. So they're making a money on the spread, even with low, but low interest rates. They're making you, money on this spread. So put like put Schwab out of the equation for a second. Commissions going to zero. I still think that is a very, very good thing. Yes. Um, I don't necessarily buy the fact that people are going to trade their heads off. You know what I mean? Like, I don't either. I, I just think that their, their, their behavior is going to pretty much remain the same. Some will be good. Some will be bad. Some are in the middle. Whatever, whatever. These places are still going to 
figure out how, ways to make money. But as you keep lowering fees on on uh, funds and on commissions, there are fewer ways for them to take advantage of clients. Yeah. So I think the the pushback is like that's just you know I think that's just uh, fodder. Yes, I agree. Uh, yeah, I, I honestly I made the point in uh, I wrote sort of a history of the fee thing the other day. I made the point. I think you could probably argue that investors are better behaved now than they've ever been. What do you think? I don't even know where to begin with that. No? In initial interpretation. Initial thoughts. All right. Here's the counterpoint. When fees were so high to trade, they were prohibitively high, right? You don't think people still overtraded back then, though? No. No. No way. I think going from $7 to $0 doesn't change behavior. Going from $200 down to 7 absolutely changed behavior. So I think when commissions were so high, I think people traded way less frequently and maybe were better behaved. But don't you think at the time people just kind of assumed this is just the cost of doing business and they didn't even think about like, well, what if, what if trading fees were nothing? I think that they traded way less frequently because fees were so high. Okay. Because that, that initial Terrence Barber study of trading fees that everyone mentions, was that was done in like the 80s and the 90s, but when fees were still pretty high. I know they had discount brokers back then, but what was discount back then? 20 or 30 bucks a trade probably? I mean, people were still trading. I think people are more informed these days than ever before. How does that sound? Is that better? Yeah, well, I agree with that, but I don't think they're necessarily better behaved. Or worse. I don't know. I think people behave the way, the way they behave. How's that? They're not better or worse. They say the same. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Another survey. This is from Pew Research. Roughly a quarter of U.S. adults, 27%, say they haven't read a book in whole or in part in the past year, whether in print, electronic, or audio form. That's low. That's way low. Yes. I, that's what I said. Someone, People were tweeting about this saying, oh, this is a travesty. I bet that number is at least... Travesty? That's like 75%. Yes. I'd say that number is at least 60% on the low end of people who have finished a book in the last year. Oh, I agree. Right? This is, yes, another survey that's... Sorry. All right. Listener questions. We've got one here. This week, I read on The Economist that the majority of jobs in finance will be replaced by AI by the time I'm 30. So this is a younger student going through getting a finance degree. What do you make of this? And is a finance college degree still a good option? That's quite a that's quite a hot take there. AI is going to replace. So that's basically saying in the next ten years. Don't buy it. I guess I didn't see this one. The take, and we've probably said this umpteen times before. I know what you're going to say. What? Say it. Advice. No. 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 Oh. Complete whiff. Finish each other's sentences. No. (laughs) (laughs) I I was just going to say. Anything that can be automated will be automated. So if okay, you're looking, I was, to, I was way off. Yeah, that was a, I gave you an A for effort. But so if you're getting into something that you that is going to be easily replaced by computers, then yeah, then your degree is worthless. But how many people go into a job thinking like I'm going to get into this job that I know is going to be replaced? But a lot of people argue that advice can be automated. I, I mean, certain things can be automated. I think the great thing about finance is there are a lot of different areas you can go into. I don't think you have to pigeonhole yourself into one specific area. And I think if you are willing to learn and not just pigeonhole yourself into one specific niche or whatever, that you can find your way around your career, especially as a young person when you don't know what you want to do. So yes, I still think a finance degree is is a worthy option. And there's still there's still plenty of jobs out there. And, and the getting back to our unemployment thing, isn't it kind of crazy that for decades and decades we've been hearing how the robots are going to take all our jobs, and yet the unemployment rate is still at 3.5% right now? Like, okay, any day any day now, robots. I mean... You know what the unemployment rate for robots is? Zero. Okay. You got me. No, well, 
Maybe. You know when you when you have to check are you a robot or not on the computer thing? Right? Like, they can't do that job, right? Can they? That I'll, I'll be worried when they can check a box, okay? How's that sound? That's when AI is going to take over. Okay, any recommendations? I know that you saw another movie by yourself this week, so. False, actually. Oh, wait. Wait, wait which movie? Joker? Yeah. Well, did I, you see I, a movie by yourself? No. Joker, I went, with, I went with a friend. Thoughts? Thoughts. I think that this is definitely a polarizing film. I have a question, though. All the stuff about like the controversy and it being pulled, all I, I only saw reports of that. I didn't see any evidence of that. Was that actually a thing? It seemed like this movie was a story that people were waiting to happen that never happened, right? Yeah, it was bizarre. Very bizarre. Can't we just ever have a movie that's just a movie and not, it doesn't have to be a greater like theory on society or something? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like To me, this is just a movie. I, I saw it as a movie. It was not uh, political or – I mean it was just a movie. But anyway. All right, question. Better Joker, Joaquin Phoenix or Heath Ledger? They were both excellent. Pick one. No. You can't make me. You're not my boss. Okay, so you think they were they were relatively equal. Boy, you're really good on the takes today. Investors Wait. aren't better or worse. <laughs> Hold on. Heath Ledger is just about as good as Joaquin Phoenix. Come on, man. Give me something here. I will give you something. So there was a few very memorable scenes. I'll answer it for you. Heath Ledger. I haven't even seen was, the new one yet. There was a few very memorable scenes. Okay. The movie was about 25 minutes too long. How long? Two and a half hours or so? It was like just over two hours. Okay. He was amazing. He should win an Oscar, I think. But the movie overall, like, it was good. But I didn't, in the, in the moment, how is this? Like, while I was watching it, I was sort of, there's points where I was getting bored. But in the weeks since, I, or I guess in the few days since, I've been thinking about it a lot. So one of those that sticks with you. So would I recommend this to somebody who has, like, no interest in, like, Batman or, not that it's so Batman related, but, like, no, it's not like a must-see. But if you're interested, if you want to see it, go see it. It was good. Okay. Good, not great. But L- lukewarm. I th- like on Rotten Tomatoes, I think it got like a ninety. The the audience gave it like a ninety something. I don't get. I don't get that. I don't get. What are you like a seventy probably? I'm like a seventy five. Somehow you. I was always an IMDb guy, and you've talked me into Rotten Tomatoes now. Okay, so the the critics gave it a sixty nine. The audience gave it a ninety. I'm more with the critics on this one. Okay, but those like, are I think both it was decent way. scores. No, it was it was a good movie. Like, okay. but and I understand there's going to be a wide range of opinions. Like this is a very polarizing movie. I'm not. I think and I. Eh. Anywho, I did see another movie by myself, but I was home. Okay. And you know what? Jake said this. One of the reasons why he likes going to the movie theaters alone, and I completely agree with this, is like it's so easy to get distracted at home. Like if I'm watching a movie at home, I'm also on Twitter. Okay. That's true. It's just so much more comfortable. Well, the new the movie theaters in my town have like reclining seats. So yeah. it's actually quite comfortable. All right. So this movie, what was it called? Cold Pursuit? It was a Liam Neeson movie. And I am always down for just mindless action junk, you know? Okay, we almost watched this on Saturday night and decided to go with something else. Like, it's not the worst movie I've ever seen. That wasn't even the point of my tweet. But I don't understand how the critics gave Taken a 58. And they, this is their review. Taken is undeniably fun with slick action, but is largely a brainless exercise. Okay, true. So they think that's a 58. I think that's like a 75. Uh, Cold Pursuit, on the other hand... Cold Pursuit delivers the action audiences expect from a Liam Neeson thriller, along with humor and a sophisticated streak that make this an uncommonly effective remake. And they gave it a 70. Completely disagree. It was not funny. It was not uh, sophisticated. I just, I don't understand. Like, who is, who are the critics here? Are these all, like, is this, is this Dennis Gartman? I just, (laughs) I don't think you can ever trust these critics. So, 
Again, we pulled the Rotten Tomatoes and we watched this movie first performed on Amazon. It was with Ethan, Ethan Hawke. I think I remember him talking about this one on a few podcasts, maybe with Mark Maron or Bill Simmons. And I'm, I'm a big Ethan Hawke fan, and the critics had it at 93%, audience had it at 68 said, all right, that can't be that bad. The, it's about a priest, and I like the first hour of the movie, it's a lot of buildup, and you think, okay, something's going to happen here. And it, it's pretty good, and the last half hour just completely went off the rails, and this it went into like, you got to be effing kidding me territory. Like, what? What just happened? And it's one of those movies where they don't even tell you what happened at the end. It just goes blank. And it was a, it was a terrible movie. I wasted two hours of my life watching it. We even we fast forwarded the last twenty minutes because it got so bad. And the critics said ninety three percent. So I don't think you can ever listen to critics. Well, on what, a movie. what 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 did the audience say? Sixty eight percent. So that was even too high. I think. Yeah. It was. Yeah. I would say don't watch it. It was bizarre, but it it had good potential, but didn't live up to by the end. Okay. So, any other recommendations? No. All right. So I picked up. I might have mentioned this one before. The Big Change by Frederick Lewis Allen, which is didn't, his, we, didn't you read, read that already? So I was about twenty five percent in. I this happens to me every once in a while. I start a book, and did I, I read that. I it's about what happened from the year nineteen hundred to nineteen fifty. Oh, uh, I did not read this. I think you should. It I I. Probably read it, read a quarter of it. I might have mentioned it before. Then I put it down, and I finally, every once in a while, another book will catch my fancy, and I'll I'll forget about it. And so I go through my catch Kindle. Your, catch your fancy. That's isn't that something Dad say? <laughs> uh, yes, in the 1700s. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was reading this history book, so come on, keep up. So this book was amazing, and two of the two of the things he, I mean, he, he does a really good job of using. I, he might be one of the most underrated financial historians that there is because his stuff is so good. And he does a good job of balancing out anecdotes and stories and data. And what? Show me a list of properly rated historians. (laughs) (laughs) Stay in your lane. All right. (laughs) So number one, um, (laughs) that's true. Okay. But so he had had two really good points. And people say all the time, especially young people like to say like, in the next 30 years or something, the whole system is going to go down and capitalism is done and... And his point was like, if this didn't happen in the Great Depression, when is there ever going to be a revolution in America? Because how could you not complete like he, he was just like surprised that we went through the Great Depression and there wasn't there weren't just millions of people in the street like looking to just take the whole system down. Like how could something like that happen where we have 25 to 30 percent unemployment, the stock market falls 85 percent. There's bread lines. How could we not have a revolt in a change in the system then? I mean, maybe now we have social media that could uh, jumpstart it a little bit, but it, it is pretty wild that the Great Depression didn't lead to more people just looking to overthrow the current system. The other thing, he, I'm going to write about this because the stats were just too good. He talks about basically how World War II was like an economic anomaly of all anomalies. I think... World War II basically screwed up people's thoughts about the economy for like the next 20 years and kind of changed like the trajectory of the country for 20 years in a way that I think a lot of the stuff that was happening already in terms of like inequality and like the Gilded Age in the early 1900s, I think World War II kind of upset that and now we're back back on that path because it was one of these times where he, he showed how basically every company in the country, the government basically said, listen, you're producing at full capacity and we don't care what it costs. You're just doing it. And it was one of these times where the biggest beneficiaries of like the economic boom then was the lower class, not the upper class, because the stock market didn't do that well. 
and people's wages rose on the lower end because they were working so much. It's I'm going to write about the, the like the economic implications of it, but his stuff on World War II was like the whole chapter was as far as like economic data goes, like really interesting. All right, you convinced me. Most underrated historian. Yes, I told you. Number one on the list. Number two is I don't know. I don't know another one. Anyway, I I'm going to write about the World War II stuff because it's I found it just fascinating, like the the economic stuff that happened then that was just completely anomalous to anything that's happened since. So. That's what I got. The big change by Frederick Lewis Allen. Uh, send us an email, annospiritspod at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.